Sweet. So we're in John chapter 20. And as we jump back into uh, John's gospel account, uh, we're at, just in case you haven't been here with us, we're at, we're at the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And here in John chapter 20, uh, the apostle recounts for us some of the events that took place on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, and he's told us these things already, that though Jesus was innocent, though Jesus was without guilt, that the authorities had decided to reject his claims as the Messiah. They called his claim to be God, the Son of God, blasphemous, and they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They handed him over to the Romans, and in particular, the Roman governor, Pilate. And though Pilate found no fault in him, even though the supposed witnesses that were brought to bring testimony against him could not you know, corroborate their, their, any wrongdoing, Jesus of Nazareth was judged. He was judged to be the king of the Jews, and he was crucified between two thieves. And, and John told us that on, on the cross, he gave his life. He surrendered himself to death. He surrendered himself to death as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. There, there, though there was no sin in him, he was counted as one of us and he offered himself up as a substitute in our place on the cross. We call that an act of substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. He died in our place for, for redemption, for Rescue for reparation. Jesus gave himself as payment for our sin, as compensation for our sin, to restore the relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. And the Gospels tell us that he offered up his life on that cross, and when the soldier came, as he was instructed to do, to come around and to break the legs of those who were being crucified to speed the process of death, when he came to Jesus... He found that he was already dead. And so to make sure, to, to ensure that he was dead, he took his spear and he thrust it into Jesus' side and he brought this sudden flow of, of blood and water. And so they knew he was dead. So his, some of his followers took him down from the cross with permission from the governor. They, they, they wrapped him in 40 feet of linen with 75 pounds of aloes and and myrrh, and they laid his body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was a, a tomb that was in a garden. It was a tomb in which the scriptures tell us no body had ever been laid. And then a stone was rolled over in front of the entrance. It was sealed with a Roman seal. In front of that tomb was stationed a, a guard of soldiers to ensure that no one tampered with the tomb. But on the third day, as the Gospels tell us, and as we know, the, Gospels de the Gospel declares that as the sun was preparing to rise, some of the women who were followers of Jesus went to the tomb so they could uh, visit Jesus and mourn, and they discovered that the stone had been rolled away. And so John tells us that Mary Magdalene ran from the tomb. She reported to the disciples that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb and she didn't know where the body was. And so Peter and John went on this foot race. John outran Peter. They got to the tomb. John standing at the entrance to the tomb. Peter rushing right in and they saw inside the tomb, there lay the linen that had wrapped Jesus' body as though his body had just disappeared, vanished. And the linen had collapsed in its place where the body had been. Where his head was, the cloth that had wrapped his head was, was neatly folded up and lying there. And then the disciples returned to their homes, witnessing these things, pondering these things. And Mary Magdalene came back to the tomb. And as she stood at the tomb weeping, the scriptures tell us, John tells us that she saw inside the tomb there were two angels. And they asked her why she was weeping. And as she was Asking them about where the body of the Lord was, she saw someone behind her who she assumed was the gardener. And 
she believed it was the gardener until she heard that familiar voice in her Galilean tongue in, in Aramaic say her name, Miriam, Mary. And it was Jesus and she knew he had risen from the dead. And Jesus told her, Mary, go and announce to the disciples that you have seen me. Go and tell them. And in verse 19 of chapter 20, we pick up the story. It's the evening of this very same day. That's why I recount all these things. It's the same day, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Already rumors were moving through the city of Jerusalem. There was, there were, people were talking about Jesus before Passover and now the rumors of him being raised from the dead or his body being stolen, whatever it was. Of course, the, the, the priests and the guards had reported that the body of Jesus had been stolen by the disciples. And we read about the resurrection and we know this, that even the disciples did not believe the first reports. We're going to see Thomas is going to demand proof of the resurrection. But wherever people were confronted, as people began to be confronted with the truth of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, the result was this, their lives were changed and transformed. And, and that is like the wonderful reality of like encountering the resurrected Jesus Christ, that when you meet him, your life is transformed, you're changed. The, the same experience of transformation that those first believers had when they encountered the risen Lord can be ours as well. And a good question for us is this, just as we consider this text this morning, is about where it was, we're about to look at it, is have I met the risen Jesus? Do I know the risen Lord Jesus? Has he transformed my life? Well, on the evening of that first day before the reality of the resurrection had been truly realized by these disciples, they had gone into hiding. They were hiding. And so John tells us this. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Love that Jesus came and stood among them. That's like he appeared right in the midst, right in the middle. That's what the original language is. Right in the middle, right in the middle of the room. And he said to them, peace be with you. Now these disciples, they were afraid. And, and I think they had reason to fear. They, they weren't afraid of God. They were afraid of people. They were afraid of the Jews because of the cross. The religious leadership had already murdered Jesus. They'd taken his life. And they feared how far, I think the disciples feared how far those who had opposed Jesus would go uh, in their pursuit of those who were following him. And so for fear of people, they had locked themselves away. And I, and I just think about that. I think, man, you know, the enemy loves that. The enemy wants to silence followers of Jesus. He wants them locked away. And the best way to silence a, a man or a woman who follows Jesus is to put the fear of people in them. Church, God doesn't want us to be afraid of people. He wants us to fear him. To fear him. And the enemy wants to silence us. And so he wants us afraid of people. And the disciples were afraid of people. They were afraid of the cross. They were afraid of the message of the cross. They were afraid of the message of the tomb. I think it's very dangerous that the church should never ever be afraid of the message of the cross. The church should not be afraid of the message of the tomb. That is our message. That is the gospel. We don't depart from declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus, the cross, and the tomb. And they were afraid of the tomb. It was empty, and they were expected, they were expecting to be charged. They were expecting to be charged with, I don't know, grave robbing, with crime. And so they locked themselves away, locked themselves to keep the Jews out. But you know who they couldn't keep out? They couldn't keep Jesus out couldn't keep Jesus out. That's the one thing you can never do in your life. You know, in your life, you will never be able to lock Jesus out. You can't lock him out. You can hide yourself away from people. You can retreat to the furthest corner of the earth. 
But you can't ever keep Jesus out. You'll never be able to lock yourself away from Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, as we find out here, is not, not hindered by physical, man-made barriers. And you can hide, but the truth is, what we find out about Jesus as he appears in the midst of his disciples is that you don't need to fear Jesus. You don't need to lock yourself away from Jesus. You might, you might fear people, but you don't need to be afraid of Jesus because Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, when he comes to you, this is the message that he proclaims to you. The very same words that he said to the disciples. Peace. Peace. Peace to you. Shalom. It means, it means safety to you. Security for you. It means harmony. Peace is like, peace is everything you would wish for yourself and everything God would wish for you. Peace to you. Peace. I think, you know, peace is, the peace that Jesus proclaimed is so much more than the shallow definition of the world's peace. It's peace with God and it's the peace of God. It is a peace that when you experience it and know it is exactly what the scripture says. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. Don't you love the peace that comes from Jesus? It's a peace that's greater than any situation. It's a peace that overwhelms the worries and anxieties of the heart. It's a peace that overcomes the fearful, runaway thoughts that can rip through our minds. It's the peace of God. It's peace with God. And only Jesus, only Jesus can give that peace. It's like amazing. You could think, wow, is it, is it possible to have that kind of peace? To have such peace? Yes, it is possible. And here's why the peace of God is impossible. Uh, is possible. Impossible. It's possible because it's based on truth. It's based on facts. And here's the facts Jesus declared. He, he showed the facts that he showed when he said, peace to you, to those 12, those 11 men locked, actually 10 men locked away. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. See, when Jesus says peace to you, the peace of Jesus is not just a feeling. If the, if the peace that comes from Jesus was just a feeling, then this would happen to you when you begin to look at the facts of your life and you look at the trouble that you face, maybe in a relationship, maybe in finances or some situation that's out of your control or some sickness that you're dealing with or the people that you fear. If, if the peace of Christ was just a feeling, then it would flee in the face of such things. But the peace that comes from Jesus is based on facts, so it doesn't flee in the face of trouble. The peace of Jesus does not flee in the face of trouble. And to show the disciples that, there, that the peace that Jesus offered, the peace that Jesus was giving them was based on facts. He did this. He showed them his hands, the nail-pierced hands, and he showed them his side, the spear-pierced side. Peace that comes from Jesus is based on the fact that Jesus conquered sin, Jesus conquered death, Jesus conquered the devil, Jesus conquered the grave, Jesus is the resurrection and the life and death could not have no hold on him and no situation, no person, no sickness, no disease, no devil can stop the peace that comes from Jesus Christ because it's based on his resurrection from the on those nail pierced hands, spear pierced side. Peace to you, he says. Boys, Look at these wounds. Check it out. Men like to show off their scars. Check it out, boys. Look what I did for you. Jesus just showed. I, they're like, wow, Jesus. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Death 
Death tried its best. But guess what, guys? I'm the resurrection and the life. And they saw him, Jesus of Nazareth. He had died and had risen from the dead. There was no mistakes. He had the nail holes in his hands. There were nail holes in his feet. A spear had been thrust into his side. It was really him. He had died, but he had been risen from the dead. He had risen from the dead that they might have life and that they might have peace in him. You know, one day we're going to get to see Jesus. I look forward to that day. When we see Jesus, when we see him, you know what we're going to see? Nail-pierced hands. He has a body. We're going to see nail-pierced feet. We're going to see that side. He says, peace be with you. But here's the thing about this peace that Jesus declares to them. The peace with God and the peace of God. It wasn't just for these 10 men locked up in the room. Peace wasn't just for them. Jesus was now going to send them to announce to others that they could experience that very same peace, the same peace, peace with God and the peace of God. Look at verse 21 see what Jesus said to them. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus repeats this theme of peace. He's driving this home. Scriptures always tell us things twice like that to make something very clear. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. In other words, gentlemen, the time for hiding behind locked doors is over. The time for hiding your light under a bull is finished. Lift off the covers, guys. Open wide the door. Go. Go. Get, get involved. Tell others about this peace that you have. Be bold. Don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. I am sending you out into the world just as the Father sent me into the world. So now I send you. You know, when... When we look at Jesus being sent in the world, he, he, sent him this world, he was sent into this world and he died. He was sent into this world and he was rejected. He was hurt, but he was also raised to life. Though he was hurt, he also saved. Though he was rejected, he was also received. Jesus was a missionary. He was sent by the Father. He came preaching good news to seek and save the lost. And now he says, now boys, as the Father sent me, now I send you. Off you go, unlock the doors. You go, wow, well, how? How could these men take on this role? Or better yet, how do we take on this role? How do we step in to do what Jesus is commanding them? Well, the thing that Jesus said, I, I, I'm sending you, but then he said this, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. Isn't that a crazy picture? Just whew, like, Wow. He breathed on them. He said, receive the Spirit. He told them, you must receive the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus' ministry began. Like if we go way back in John and we look at how the ministry of Jesus began, it began with the Holy Spirit first descending upon him in the form of the dove. Then, then he went out and declared good news and began his ministry the father announced, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Receive him. Receive his ministry. Receive his, his message. Just, and so just as Jesus received power from the Holy Spirit and began to preach and to do mighty works, so we need to follow in the same pattern to, to receive the Holy Spirit to continue to do the works of Jesus Christ. You know, how, how do you... Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The greatest commandment. You know, how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and how do you love your neighbor as yourself without the power of the Holy Spirit? 
I can't do those things without the power of the Holy Spirit. How could we do the works of the Father without the anointing of the Spirit? So Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Right at that moment, these men were born again. They were regenerated. This is, this is the turning point, Old Testament to New Testament in that sense that this is the first people to be born again right here, regenerated by the Spirit. We look at the Old Testament, it was like the Spirit of God just came upon men and women for certain acts and certain seasons and for things that God called them to do. But here, now the indwelling presence of the Spirit and the disciples of Jesus. Receive the Spirit. Right from the, the book of Genesis, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is, is seen, he's revealed to us as breath, as wind, the wind of the Lord, the breath of God. Breath can't be seen, you know, breath. Can't see it. Can't touch your breath. You can't grasp breath. Can't, you can't grasp it with your hand. You know, you can, you can feel breath. You can experience the life that comes from breath. At a baby's birth, you can, you can see when they first breathe, that scream comes out. When life is fading, you can see and you can hear when breath departs from a body. When life departs. You see, we use that term, catch your breath. I'm just trying to catch, you can't catch your breath. You can't grasp breath, but you can experience its presence. You can experience its life. Like the wind. This is the spirit. Like the wind, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but you see its presence on the trees and you see its effect on the leaves and you feel it on your skin. Breath is life. And Jesus breathed on them, receive life, receive power to live, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I breathe and your job is this, you receive. Receive. That's actually a command. I want to breathe into you the same presence and power that enabled me to do the Father's work. Receive. Whew. Jesus says something amazing here. I read this, I'm like, wow, this is crazy, actually. In some sense, this verse is kind of confusing a little bit and stuff. It's like, in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. What? If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. First, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he says, receive the Spirit. And now he says, and you have the power to proclaim forgiveness or the power to not proclaim forgiveness. They were to go forth, just as we are to go forth and announce to the world the good news of salvation. That if sinners would repent, that if sinners would believe on Jesus Christ, their sins would be forgiven them and they could have peace with God and they could have the peace of God. And, and just like these first disciples, you and I are to announce the message of forgiveness. That Jesus Christ has purchased our redemption. That Jesus Christ has paid your ransom. That if you will believe on Jesus, if you believe on Jesus, I can, I can declare with regards to you with authority that Jesus Christ will forgive your sins. That your sins are forgiven if you believe in Jesus. However great, however many, though your sin be like scarlet, if you will believe on Jesus, those sins will be made white as snow. Church, we declare forgiveness in Jesus' name. Not that I can't, provide, I can't provide forgiveness, but I can tell you I know the one who has provided for your forgiveness. His name is Jesus. He, he is the crucified and risen Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus. Good news. Jesus 
made a way in Jesus, you can be forgiven of the sin that has condemned you. In Jesus, you can have life in his name, eternal life. Now, the, church is, the church is supposed to be this, a forgiveness dispensary. There's forgiveness in Jesus for anything, for everything. If you come to Jesus, he will dispense, his, he will forgive you. The church is the place where we declare forgiveness in Jesus' name. Now the story goes on and John tells us something interesting about Thomas. He says, now Thomas, one of the 12 called twin, the twin, we don't know if it's brother, sister, we don't know. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Wow, what a bummer, eh? That would, that would, yeah, that would be a pretty big disappointment, I have to say. It's like, you know, always good to be with God's people when they gather. You never know what you'll miss. You know, you never know what'll happen. Just ask Thomas. He's like the ultimate example of that. Shoot, why didn't I go to church? Whatever. Why didn't I gather with God's people? And actually, we, we don't know where Thomas was. The other 10 were hiding. They were locked in a room. And we always like, we always, Thomas always gets beat on, you know, like Doubting Thomas, what a loser. Uh, I don't think it's fair that he gets called Doubting Thomas. Thomas, when you look at his character and his nature in Scripture, he was bold, he was loyal. Thomas was a man who took the words of Jesus very literally. When Jesus said, let's go to Jerusalem, Thomas is like, why would we go to Jerusalem? They were just trying to kill you there. Jesus is like, no, we're going. He's like, okay, we'll go and die with you. Like he was a real literal kind of guy. And he was a loyal man. But somehow he missed the blessing of, of meeting Jesus that, that night. That night when Jesus appeared to the ten and he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Where was Thomas? I don't know. He wasn't afraid. That's what I actually think about Thomas. I'm like, Thomas wasn't afraid. So he didn't lock himself behind doors. He wasn't hiding. He was just out. Verse 25 tells us, So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, I think about this guy, I'm like, there's actually some things that you can appreciate about this character. You know, we go, yeah, what a loser, you doubter. I think we're mistaken by that criticism of Thomas. Thomas was honest. That's a good quality. Don't you appreciate honest people? He wasn't playing religious games. He, he didn't believe. And so he said, I don't believe. You know, he, I can't believe. I'm not going to pretend that I believe. You know, I always remember that. My youth pastor, you know, when I was a kid, my youth pastor would always say, don't be a pretender. Don't pretend. You're in or you're out. If you're going to walk for Jesus and live for Jesus, then live for Jesus. But if you're going to play games, then at least be honest about it. At least say, I'm playing games. I, I, I'm not being true. Thomas was honest. He said, I'm not going to pretend to believe, guys. I, I want evidence. And really, I mean, when you think about that, isn't that reasonable to want evidence? Like that's, isn't that reasonable? That's totally reasonable. That's like rational. Following Jesus is not some sort of like irrational, wacko religion, mysticism. That's not what following Jesus is. It's, you know, following Jesus is not something that's supposed to be vague and undefined and leave you full of questions. Following Jesus is about answers. It's, it's a rational Faith decision. Following Jesus is logical. Following Jesus is sensible. And, and Thomas knew the realities of a, of a crucifixion and what that meant. I mean, Jesus was dead. Rising from the dead is not rational. It's not rationally possible. So I need evidence. I need evidence. 
So he was a discerning man. I would say that about honest man, a, a man who wanted evidence, a man who, who was discerning. He, he, he understood that if he was going to put his faith in Jesus, then the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead was needed to be proved. I mean, why put your faith in someone who hasn't been raised from the dead if Jesus is raised from the dead? And he was sincere. And he said, I will never believe unless this happens. And then he set the parameters. The original language actually expresses a double negative. We don't see it in English. Thomas says, unless this, unless this happens, I will not, I will not believe. It's funny how you can say, I will not, I will not believe unless this happens, and yet you can still have a heart that's looking for evidence. It's like, I'm, but I'm willing. I'm like willing to be convinced, like just convince me. Or you can say this, I will not believe, and it's a statement of total stubborn refusal. It doesn't matter what the evidence is, you won't believe. So you could say, I will not believe, but be looking for evidence. And you can say, I will not believe and not be looking for evidence. Just stubborn. So let's read on. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, there they are locked up again. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Again, right in the middle. Same message. He says, peace be with you. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Eight days later, so sometimes, man, I just... It actually makes me feel sorry for Thomas. That the rest of these guys are functioning with the fact that they know Jesus is raised from the dead and they believe. But he's on the outside of the group at this point in time with regards to faith. Behind locked doors and Jesus comes into their midst and he stands with them again and says, peace be with you. Then Jesus turns directly to Thomas. And contrary to our thinking about Thomas, Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas for doubt. Jesus does this. Jesus commands Thomas to believe. Listen to this. I think this is important. You're allowed to have doubts as a Christian. You may be a doubter. You may doubt the resurrection. You may doubt the fact that your sins are forgiven. You may doubt that there's really salvation in Jesus' name, or you may doubt that you can have victory over sin, or you might, but listen, Jesus does not rebuke doubting. It's okay to doubt. We all have doubts. Jesus won't rebuke you for doubting. Here's what he will do. He will command you to believe. He actually says to Thomas, be not faithless, believe. Be not faithless, believe. You see, there's, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. See, doubt is always rooted in an intellectual problem. We, we want to believe but faith is overcome by problems. You know, faith is like overwhelmed by questions. I'm doubting in my mind. Like I said, you, you could have doubts about eternal life. Questions for you can rise with regards to eternal life. Does that ever happen for you? Guess what? That happens to me. Like regularly, every day, I have doubts and I have questions. You can have doubt that you'll, you'll gain victory over some area of temptation. Or you can doubt, is God really going to answer this prayer? I've been praying this, Lord, for years. Are you going to answer? Doubt is this. Doubt is intellectual and doubt is when faith is overwhelmed by problems or questions. It's an intellectual problem. 
But doubt can be overcome. Here's how doubt is overcome. Doubt is overcome by the renewal of the mind. Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your, your, your doubt can be overcome by the reality of God's promises and his word. So doubt is an intellectual problem. Look at, I would say this, when you have doubts, when you're wrestling with doubts, and we all have them, the answer is to look to the promises of God. The promises of God declare to you the realities of God. So doubt is intellectual, but doubt and unbelief are two different things. Unbelief is not intellectual. Unbelief is a moral problem in the heart of a human being. Unbelief means this, you simply refuse to believe. Thomas would not believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. Church, we, we miss this about Thomas. Thomas didn't have an intellectual problem. He had a moral problem going on in his heart. He was stubborn. He refused to believe. He would not surrender himself to Jesus. He, he, not an intellectual problem. He had a moral not an intellectual problem with the resurrection. He had a moral problem. His was a refusal to believe and he said, I'm going to believe on my terms. <laughs> he said, I set the terms. I'll believe, but it'll be on my terms. That's not intellectual. That's, that's a moral heart issue. Wait a minute. You mean you set the framework? You mean you, Thomas, Lay the groundwork for what's acceptable to receive and not to receive. He didn't have an intellectual problem. He had a moral problem. Thomas was stubborn. Thomas refused to believe. You know, some people don't have an intellectual problem with the gospel. I would tell you this. I think a lot of people, they don't have an intellectual problem with the gospel. Their problem is this. They have stubborn hearts. They have stubborn, unbelieving hearts. That's what Thomas had. He said, if I see the nail marks in his hands, if I, if I put my finger into those marks, and unless I put my hands in his side, I will not, I will not believe. Unless I see. How many people have said that to you over the years? Maybe you said that. Unless I see. Unless with my own eyes I see, I will not believe. If Jesus just shows himself to me, I will believe. If Jesus will just show me his hands and his feet and his side, I will believe. Look at That sounds really logical on one level, but it's actually the evidence of a very hard heart, church. It's the evidence of a stubborn heart rather than the evidence of a searching mind. When someone says, I will not believe unless, well, first of all, they already admitted that they don't believe. And then they state what defines the terms of evidence for them. What constitutes reason to believe? When someone says, I will not believe unless, what they're putting their faith in is not, their, not, not the evidence, but they're putting their faith in their own, I don't know, scientific ability to determine what's going on. You already have faith. You put your faith in the parameters that you set. You put your faith in what you determined is necessary for evidence. You're setting the parameters for what evidence is necessary. You know, Hebrews warns. The book of Hebrews in chapter 3 warns us. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You know what an evil heart is? An unbelieving heart is an evil heart. That's a heart with a moral problem. Thomas had a moral problem. Let me ask you this. With regards to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, what evidence do you need? How about the evidence outside of the tomb? The stone was rolled away. John told us that. How about the evidence that he told us with regards to what was inside the tomb? Body was vanished. 
The linen that had wrapped it was lying there. The cloth that was around the face was folded up. How about the experience of those who went there that he told us about? How about the experience of Mary in the tomb who saw two angels and declared to her that Jesus was risen from the dead? How about the evidence or the experience of Mary on the outside of the tomb? Mary met Jesus and she worshiped him. John has given us evidence on the inside of the tomb. He's given us evidence on the outside of the tomb. John has given us and told us about the experience of the witnesses who saw what was inside the tomb, and he told us about their experience outside the tomb. What evidence do you need? It's not necessary to see Jesus to believe. Jesus appeared and he showed Thomas his hands and his side, and Jesus said to him, Put your finger, Thomas, in the nail hole and put your hand in my side. You want to talk about evidence? You want to talk about evidence? Well, here's what I'll tell you there's no evidence of. There is no evidence that Thomas ever accepted Jesus' invitation. Put your finger in my hand. Put your hand in my side. No evidence that Thomas did this. No evidence that Thomas put his hand in his side. He, he needed no more evidence, church. Jesus commanded him, don't disbelieve. Believe. Th that's literally been translated this. Stop becoming faithless and become a believer. Stop becoming faithless and become a believer. That's a command. It's a command to the one who has a moral problem, a hard heart, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Moral problem of unbelief. When Jesus said, put your finger here, put your hand here, do you know what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. Thomas is the first person in the history to say of Jesus, my God. My Lord and my God. The dictionary says that the word my is a possessive determinator. A possessive determiner that communicates belonging. That communicates association. We say of Jesus, my Lord, my God. My is a personal possessive pronoun. My Lord, my Lord, the one to whom I belong. The one who has the power of deciding the direction of my life. The one who is master. The one who is Lord. The title Lord is given to God, the Messiah. My Lord. And, to, and it is to declare that you are the one, Jesus. You are the one, my Lord. You are the one to whom I belong and to whom my faith belongs, my Lord. He said, my God. Acknowledging Jesus was God, that he was deity. It's, it's spoken of the one true God, my God, the one. He's saying, the one I worship, mine. You're the one I worship, Jesus. You're the one who is the source and the sustainer of my life. My Lord and my God, I want to tell you, you have to say my. It's not enough to say that Jesus is Lord. It's not enough to say Jesus is God. The demons acknowledge those things. The demons acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but they don't serve him. The demons acknowledge that Jesus is God, but they don't serve him. You need to say, my Lord and my God. And as soon as you put my in there, belief becomes life. Whew. The Spirit comes upon you, fills you. It's a living faith. My Lord and my God, my is the possessive determiner that communicates you belong to Jesus. You know, Thomas, 
All of his unbelief vanished the second that profession came from his mouth. Oh, there could still be doubts, intellectual issues. I haven't figured this out. I haven't figured that out. Not sure about this. Not sure about this in my life. Is this dealt with? What about the creation of the world? You could have doubts. But unbelief vanished when he made that profession. In fact, I would say this. Unbelief vanished when he worshipped. As Thomas declared, my Lord and my God, unbelief dissolved. Listen, you want to know the cure for unbelief? The cure for unbelief is to worship. When you find that you worship, something changes in your heart. In your heart, something changes when you worship Jesus. Worship is the cure for unbelief. The, the cure for unbelief is not intellectual because unbelief is a moral heart issue. So the solution is not intellectual. The solution is for your heart to be touched, for your heart to be changed. And Jesus said, Thomas, stop it. Stop it. Stop becoming faithless and become a believer. My Lord, my God. And you know, faith rises no higher than this. This is the highest point of faith right here to confess of Jesus of Nazareth. My Lord and my God. My God. That's a miracle, actually, for Thomas to say that. He was a Jew. From the time he's a little boy, Thomas was taught there's one God and he's in heaven. And for Thomas to acknowledge, to call Jesus God, was to acknowledge that God came down from heaven to make a way for salvation. For him to declare with regards to a human man, the man God, my God, that was a miracle. And so Jesus says to him, I love this. He said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Th Thomas said, unless I see, unless I touch, I will never believe. And Jesus said this, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. It's actually a beatitude. You know, in beatitudes, we talk about the Mount of Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last beatitude of the scriptures. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who having not seen believes. I'll tell you what's better than seeing. Believing. Believing is better than seeing. Better than seeing is the decision to believe even when you haven't seen. Jesus says, blessing will be poured out on you. Happiness. In the Bible, faith in God's promises and his word is counted as righteousness. Everyone has faith. Everyone has faith. It's just a matter of where you've put your faith. What is the object of your faith? And as followers of Jesus, we, we, Jesus is the object. He's the person upon whom we set our faith. His word is the object of our faith. Those who don't believe, you know where the object of their faith is? It's themselves. And in all of this, Jesus is saying this, it's not necessary to see me to believe. You're not saved by seeing. You're saved by believing. The solution is not your eyes. The solution is your heart. Be not unbelieving, but believe. And that you would believe is the whole emphasis and the thrust of John's gospel. Look at how he wraps up the chapter here, the last two verses. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing 
you may have life in his name. You know, I bet John, like, I just imagine this. He's writing his gospel and he like gets to this point. He's like, man, I should have told that story. Oh, darn it, I left this one out. Oh yeah, right, there was that time. I should have written that down. And, and he's like, man, there's so many things which I didn't write down. But he'd gotten to this point where he had said enough, actually. John said enough right here. There's enough. He'd gotten to the point where he told us about a man. And the man's name was Thomas. And the man said this about Jesus. My Lord, my God. John's like, well... There's not really anything else I need to answer. There's no more evidence that I need to give. There's no more stories that I need to tell. There's no human experience that can be added to this that matters. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And everything John has written through his gospel has led us to this point. To this point that we would come to the place that we would consider what he'd say, what he says, and, and then we would come to the decision and make a hard decision for ourselves to make the same declaration that Thomas made. My Lord, my God. And John also wrote his gospel for this so that the, those of you who do believe would continue on in belief, that you would grow in belief, that you would grow in understanding and so look at, when we talk about, we don't want to do this. We don't want to lock ourselves away. Don't seal off your heart. John wrote for this reason, so that, so that you would come to the place of believing and experience life in his name. And when you believe in Jesus, you begin to experience life in his name. You begin to pray in his name, Jesus, in the name of Jesus. When you believe in Jesus and you begin to experience life in his name, you, the name of Jesus is on your lips. You'll tell people about Jesus. You, you, you just want to be around those who love Jesus. And John's whole gospel exists so that you would find a person and that you would believe, his name's Jesus, that you would believe that in Jesus' name there is life. That in Jesus there is salvation. That's what this message is all about. Intellectual problems, doubt, that's okay, church. Jesus will help you with that. You go to his word. Say, Lord, I got questions, help me. But a moral issue in the heart, an unbelieving heart, I can just tell you that there's just one single command for that. Stop being unbelieving and believe. Put your faith in Jesus. Do what Thomas did. Worship my Lord, my God.